good evening and welcome to Wednesday night Bible study here at Bethel Temple. I am not Pastor Mike, I'm Pastor Devin. He is uh, suffering for the Lord in uh, Alaska on his Alaskan cruise. So we're really glad that him and Sheila got a chance to go and celebrate their anniversary. And you know, as I say that, I'm pretty sure the first time I spoke here was actually for the same reason last year. And it'll actually be a year for me and my wife being here in next week, I think. Pretty close. So we've loved being here with you guys. And I'm honored that Pastor Mike has allowed me the opportunity to speak uh, up here as often as he has. Uh, And so I I don't take that lightly. I'm very honored. But uh, so he will be actually be gone for the next four weeks, uh, his cruise this week. And then they will be taking their missions trip to Poland uh, starting the week after that. And so it's going to be a very uh, busy, busy, uh, almost said summer, but fall for him already getting started. But he's asked me to cover the next four weeks, which I am very honored to do. And in that process, I have put together a four-week series that we're going to be starting tonight. And, you know, we always let the Holy, Holy Spirit uh, do what he wants to do, so we may change things up. We'll just have to wait and see. But I'm really excited about the topic tonight. Um, I'm going to be talking about arguing semantics. And that, uh, that title was kind of funny to me because I, uh, growing up, if you knew me whenever I was a kid, and probably still now, my wife could probably attest to this, I, I enjoy a good debate. I like to argue. I, I learned to call it a debate instead of argument because it sounds nicer, but it's pretty much the same thing. If I think I'm right about something, or even if I'm not quite sure, I will, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try to prove my point. And one of the things that I always used to get in trouble for, I remember my dad specifically, we would have theological debates. My dad was a, was a pastor, and he always kind of encouraged me to, to think for myself. And he would always say, well, now you're just arguing semantics. I would, I would uh, split hairs over words, and he'd say, you know, that, that's really not that big of a deal. But even then, and, and growing up now, I have to say, semantics are important. And you might be saying, what in the world are semantics? Well, semantics are the study of the words that we use, the way that we use them, and the context that we, that we use them in. So, my choice of the word semantics is actually the study of semantics, because it's the word that I chose to use. So, anyway, I'll get off of that. But we need to think about the words that we use. Have you ever stopped to think about why we use one word over another? And depending on who you talk to, they might use one word for something completely different than something else, but it means something to them. Well, that's what we're going to be talking about today. And this really came from whenever uh, we went with the youth to Orlando. My wife and I were driving through the city and we passed by a church that had a banner on it. It was a rainbow flag. And on the banner it read, Justice for All People. And it kind of struck me funny as I read that and I started thinking about it. And as we develop the sermon today, hopefully you'll understand why I felt like that wasn't the best word choice. Now, I want to make it clear, I am not going to be talking more about what Pastor Mike did. He's talked about hot topics for hot times, and he talked about a lot of uh, very... um, relevant political things. I'm not going to be doing that because I think he did an extraordinary job and I don't feel like I need to, but I am going to be kind of focusing on on one element. So there might be a little bit of crossover, but this is a little bit different. So I want to focus in on the word justice and I better set my timer because I have a feeling that if I'm not careful, I could go over tonight because this is, I'm very excited about this one. So I want to talk about the word justice because justice is something that I feel is very, very mis- 
used. What is justice? Whenever we think about justice, we think about the justice system, right? Uh, Usually a criminal who has been caught and they are now facing a judge and probably being sentenced to something. They've done something wrong. Now they're facing the consequences. They're facing justice. That's kind of the way that we think about it often, or a, a justice of the peace, somebody who enacts the law, right? Well, I believe that in today's society, the term justice is often distorted, it's misused, and it's misapplied. And there's three, three ways, and I'll break these down as we get further in, three places where I think that they are being used right now that are distorted. The first one is in the social justice movement. Now, in and of itself, I want to be clear, in and of itself, the social justice movement isn't a bad thing, but some of the ways that it's being practiced is sexual justice is another thing. We'll get into that a little bit more. And reproductive justice, which is kind of the new term that's being used uh, for the pro-choice versus pro-life debate. And so we're going to get into those a little bit. But those are three ways that I believe that the term justice is being misapplied and being distorted. And let me explain what I mean. First of all, the definition of justice from the dictionary, three things popped out to me of these definitions. The first one is just behavior or treatment, how I deserve to be treated. If I say that you're not treating me justly, I'm saying that you are not treating me the way that I deserve to be treated. The second one is the quality of being fair and reasonable, or the administration of the law or authority, so like a judge or a justice, uh, the justice system. Now, the postmodern definition, and if you're not familiar with that term, postmodern, we live in a postmodern era, specifically with the way that we think and the way that we do things. The modern era focused on fundamental truths, things that were unchanging, and now we are in the postmodern era where most people uh, would say, it's my truth and your truth, and you can have your truth as long as your truth doesn't impinge on my truth. And we can get along as long as we can be tolerant of each other and each other's truths. That's what postmodernism is. And they define justice. uh, This is not a definition from any particular place, but it's just kind of my interpretation based on several resources that I've read. It is the retribution of a seemingly oppressed people group and the acknowledgement of their worth, which must include the affirmation and acceptance of their values and beliefs. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that I believe that. I'm saying that that is the common usage of the term justice today. And the three forms that we used it before, social justice, sexual justice, reproductive justice, they are not saying facing consequences. They are saying uh, justice in the way that we should be treated in these three areas. But I find it very interesting, and here's why. If we call for justice then we believe that some standard has been violated. If, I believe, if I'm calling for justice, I believe that some standard has been violated. But what standard and whose standard? So let me, let me use an illustration here real quick. If I were to say to Johnny Barfield in the back, Johnny, you cannot sit in that chair. You need to get up. You need to move. You cannot sit in that chair. What is he going to say to me? Well, why? Right? He's not just going to take my word for it. He's not just going to say, well, okay, I'm going to move. He's going to say, why? Why can't I sit here? Maybe he sat there for a long time. Maybe he just doesn't really care to move. Why do I have to move? And if I said, because it's a violation of my rights for you to sit there. Again, he's going to say, why? 
Why? What, by what standard, what rule says that I can't sit there? And Now, what if we went to the city hall and we opened up the book and we, sh- we saw a law that was formed several years ago that said nobody can sit in that chair. Now there's a little bit more of a standard, but there's still the question of, but why? Why is there a rule about this chair? Whose standard are we talking about? Any time in history, and there have been many times in history, where we have seen people make an appeal to justice. They have said, this is not right. It must change. One that comes uh, to, to mind that I think we can all look back to and see as truly being an unjust situation was the issue of slavery. Back in the 1860s is where this really started to become a, a, a big deal. But prior to that, people were beginning to say, this is unjust and it must change. But they were not saying, it needs to change because I think it should. It needs to change because I feel like it. It needs to change because I just think, no, they made an appeal to something else. Whenever Abraham Lincoln gave his Gettysburg Address, he said four score and seven years ago, on this continent, a new nation. And he began to call back an appeal to a document that was written several years before, four score and seven years ago by our founding fathers, that made a proposition that all men are created equal. Now, if you've read your history books anytime recently, you know that that document is the Declaration of Independence. And this document made an appeal to certain self-evident, unalienable, and equal rights endowed by us, on us, by our Creator. specifically of those were life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But why were they making an appeal, and to who were they making that appeal to? They were writing this Declaration of Independence to the the English royal monarchy, right? We all know that. We're all Americans. We've taken uh, uh, U.S. history classes. We know how our nation was founded. They were declaring their independence from Great Britain, and they were writing this document, but why did they write it in the way that they did? What was the significance of saying, we have certain rights given to us by our creator? Why would that have spoken to the king of England? Reason being... Because monarchs in those days, they held on to a doctrine known as the divine right of kings. This was a doctrine, it was a, it was a philosophy of rulership that said, I'm the king because God has ordained me to be the king. I'm in this place because God has put me in this place. And because God has put me in this place, you as my royal subjects do not get to call me a liar. You don't get to say that that's not true. They were saying, we believe that God has given all men rights and we don't need to be run, ruled by a king. That was the, what the Declaration of Independence was ultimately saying. Now, this was not unique to the English monarchy. In fact, kings all across the world and all of history have made this same claim. Now, I've always been very interested in uh, genealogies, family trees, since I was really, really little. And a couple years ago, actually over the course of most of my life, I've been kind of working on figuring out where did I come from. I've always enjoyed that. And if you've ever done anything with myheritage.com or genealogy.com, you'll know that typically what happens is you find a lot of dead ends right? Because you find a lot of dead people. Can we just put it that way? You find a lot of tombstones that you can't figure out where they came from. Somehow you're related, but you don't know. Every once in a while, though, you'll find a thread. And when you find a thread, you just want to keep pulling on that thread and pulling on that thread. And I found the jackpot in my family. It was, it was pretty cool. I actually traced my lineage back to the person who came over from England 
He was a part of a noble family. He was not the oldest son, so he didn't get the full birthright. And that was pretty typical of the second born. They would come to America, they would take a plot of land, and they would start a new life here. And so that noble family, if you trace that back further and further and further, it actually traced all the way back to a a Welsh royal lineage. Pretty cool. I, I just thought that was a really interesting thing. But I kept going further and further and further and further. And before I knew it, I started noticing names that just seemed very odd, very strange, and started to look them up. And some of them were actually from Welsh mythology. They weren't even real people. They were Welsh mythological characters. I thought, this is weird. Why would we do that? So I kind of stopped going that direction, and I started looking at some of the offshoots, the cousins and all that, and I found one that claimed to be related to Anna the prophetess who prayed over uh, Jesus, and then one who claimed to be related to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I thought, wait a second, something's really strange here. What's going on? So I did some research. What I found is that when you have royal lines like that, which I had found the connection to, they would often make these claims of divinity whether it would be a pagan religion or even within Christianity, because it gave them legitimacy in their rulership. They weren't really connected to those people, but it it connected them to something. It said, I'm connected to something bigger than you. And you have to understand, the backdrop of our history, this happened all the time. You take Pharaoh, you take some of those other kings, and they would claim to be gods in, in human form. Pharaoh claimed to be that. Why would they do that? What was the purpose of that? Now, you have to understand that people in the ancient world, their understanding of God was nothing like ours. In fact, the only time God had revealed himself to a people group was with Abraham, right? So what they would do is they would begin to see, okay, there's nature in the world, so there must be an explanation. We understand how fertility works, but we don't understand where it comes from. So they began to attach deities to that. Well, they didn't understand who these deities were. They just attached the, the, the nature to those deities, and they made that a part of their religion. They thought, well, we've kind of noticed if we do this dance over here, then it rains every once in a while. Not all the time, but sometimes, so there must be something to that. Then there might have been somebody, say they got struck by lightning, and they lived. So, well, the gods must have marked them, so they must be one of our rulers, and that's how rulership became a part of, uh, of society, this mark of divinity. They would, they, would, they would attach themselves to something bigger than themselves to give themselves legitimacy. But why would a king need to connect himself with deity? Because deity is the highest standard. Deity is the highest standard. Justice requires a standard. If I'm going to make a call that something is unjust, I am saying there's some higher standard that has declared that this thing is unjust. I've made the statement that if something is wrong, that there is someone who has determined if it's right or wrong. I can't separate the two from that point. But is God really the highest standard? The ancients believed it was. But over time, they began to question this. Because their understanding of God was very different from ours. They didn't understand who Yahweh was. They didn't know the personal God that you and I do. What they, but they understood these far-off gods who somehow controlled things, but they weren't personable. So was there something that held them together? Was there something that caused them? A lot of, a lot of those gods, they didn't believe to actually be the creators of the world, just the managers of it. Now, philosophical thought, philosophers, as they came about, and they started realizing there were other explanations to nature than some of the deities they had connected it to. Obviously, we know that our God is in, in control, but they didn't understand that. And so they began to question things. 
Plato, the great philosopher, writes of Socrates, his mentor, in a discourse with a man named Euthyphro. Euthyphro was a type of priest. And and this came to be known as the Euthyphro Dilemma. Let me explain. Euthyphro asks Socrates, is something good because God says it's good? Or does God say it's good because it's good? Now, those of us from a Christian perspective, we can probably answer that question better than the Greek philosophers could. But let me explain how they would have understood it. There's two problems with this dilemma. The first one is the first option that says something is good because God has said it's good. It it isn't intrinsically good. It's just that God has declared it to be, and that makes it good. The other option is that something above God has decided that this is good, and God is simply acknowledging that it's good. Everybody following with me on that? Now, there's two problems with that. With the first option, it brings out the question, could God change his mind? If God has said something is good one day, could he then the next day say it's not? And if he didn't, if it's not good because he said it, but because it is good and he's simply identifying it, then isn't it possible that there's something higher than him determining that? That was the question that Plato was battling. Now, you have to understand that Greek mythology, again, was not based on our Christian thought. They did not understand God the way that we do. Uh, They saw God as the explanation of nature, like I mentioned. And because God was simply a projection of their own humanity, their gods possessed man's moral brokenness. So if you read some of the early Greek mythology, their gods were very often doing despicable things, coming down from from Mount Olympus and having relations with women and, and, and birthing children, which we understand is not what God does at all in that sense, not in the way that they were. Um, but that was their understanding of God. He, he, was, he was morally broken. And so if he said something was good one day and he changed it, that would be a terrible, terrible thing. And they never knew what was good. It was just whatever the God, it was kind of on a whim of God. And if there was a higher standard, what is that standard? What do, we need to, what do we need to be searching for? Now, the third option, and you have to understand that as, as uh, Greek mythology grew, um, Christianity came into the picture, and things went a different direction, and, and Christian thinkers began to answer this differently based on what Scripture teaches. The third option is this, that God calls something good because it reflects his nature, which is never changing. Now, you, it's good to understand that that was the backdrop because of the ancient world. Because as we read into Genesis specifically, we need to see that as Moses wrote this book, while everything in it is true, he wrote it with a very particular purpose in mind. That purpose being to act as an apologetic or a defense against some of the pagan views of God. They believe that God was just the manager of nature. We believe that God is the creator of nature. They believed that God could change his mind at any point in time and that he could just choose something that was good or maybe there was a higher standard. We believe that God determines something's good because it's reflected by his nature. So as we read Genesis, there's a couple things that I want to point out. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and that's right, I have just now begun preaching, so... I'll promise to get you out of here by 10, maybe 11. We'll see. No, I'm just kidding. All right, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read through this. should be up on the screen. You can read it with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was a, was a formless and desolate emptiness, and darkness was over the surface, surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. 
God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. He called the, day, the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Now, see what happens here. In, chat, in verse 4, God saw that the light was good. He determined that the light was good. And as we go through chapter 1, he says that over and over. He created this, and he saw that it was good. He created this, and he saw that it was good. God determined what was good by what reflected his nature. That which produced life, that which was fruitful, and that which was ordered. The first time he said something was not good was whenever he said it is not good for man to be alone. Why would he think that was not good? Because you have to think about our God is a triunity. Three persons in one being eternally coexisting with, with himself. He was in an eternal relationship. And he created man who is now without an equal partner. That was the first time he said something wasn't good. Why? Because it didn't reflect his character and his nature. Everything he did was good because it reflected him. It was not good because it didn't reflect him. Very important to see. Now moving on to chapter 2, verses 9 and then 15 and 17. Out of the ground the Lord caused every tree to grow that is pleasing uh, to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Verses 15. Then the Lord God took man and put him in the garden to cultivate it and tend it. The Lord God commanded man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For on the day that you eat from it you will certainly die. So we get this picture now of two trees in the garden. Two trees. Now, uh, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, growing up, and it was probably pictures that I saw, things like that, I always thought the, tree, the, the trees in the middle of the garden were just these two kind of apple trees just out there. And I've always thought that, actually, until recently, uh, my wife and I and Grayson, whenever we were in Orlando, we went to Disney World. We went to uh, uh, Animal Kingdom. And when you walk in, and I tried to find a good picture, but it, it, it wouldn't fit on the screens very well. Um, if you walk in, there's this giant tree at the beginning, very iconic tree, probably as big as this room and taller than this building, right whenever you walk into the park. I don't think it's real, but it's, it's very iconic. You can't miss it. And that tree, they, it's, it's uh, an image of a tree that grows in Africa, and they call it the tree of life because it can take up so much water that it can survive for a very long time and produces a lot of life. And the first time whenever I saw that, I thought, wow, I've always pictured these small trees, but it's very possible that there were these huge trees in the middle of the garden. Just kind of changed my perspective a little bit. I thought I'd share that. So two trees in the garden, one of life, one of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life sustained life. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was different. Now, one way that can be interpreted is it's the knowledge of good from evil. In other words, discernment. So you had the tree of life that sustained them. If they ate it, they would be sustained. Now, there wasn't anything special about the fruit necessarily. It was more of a symbol. And their obedience of eating as God told them to eat, he was sustaining their life. He was going to let them live for eternity. And then there's the tree of discernment that they were told not to eat or you will die. Now, we know the story, if you do know the story. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, Now the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field which the Lord had created. And he said to the woman, Has God really said to you, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? That's how Satan does it, right? He throws something out there that isn't quite true, but it sounds true. 
The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Now pay attention to this in verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you certainly will not die. For God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good from evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves a covering. Now, what did the serpent said? Say, he said, you won't die. Your eyes will be open. You'll be like God. Now, they ate of it. Did they die? Not exactly. Were their eyes open? Yes. And we'll see in a second, they did become like God. The serpent wasn't necessarily lying. He was telling them much more than they needed to know. Now, they've eaten of the fruit. Something has changed. Now, they know the difference between good and evil. Remember that prior to this, God told them what was good, and he told them what was not good, reflected by his character. Now they have an ability that they did not possess before. They could make the determination of good and evil on their own. And because they could, they now would have to. Now, what happens, they are sent away from the garden, right? And, a, and something that we would consider to be punishment. Let's, let's look at chapter or verses 16 here. The woman... He said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall deliver children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten eaten of the tree, about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. With hard labor you shall eat from it. All the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. Yet you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, he said, you will not die. They, they will. We know that. We all do. You will become like God, knowing good from evil. He wasn't wrong. They ate from the tree. Their eyes were open. Suddenly, they had to make moral decisions. Now, jumping down to verse 22. Then the Lord said, Behold, that man has become like one of us, knowing good from evil. That's what the serpent said. And now he might reach out his hand and take fruit also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way of the tree of life. Now, pay attention to that. He sent them out. Why did he send them out? Because now they were like God, knowing good from evil. And he said, we cannot allow them to reach out their hand, take the tree of life. So everything he did was to keep them from partaking in that fruit so that they would not live forever. Now, we could look at that and say that was punishment. That was exile. God banished them because of their disobedience. And I think there's some truth to that. But I want to paint a little bit of a different picture. What if it wasn't so much punishment as it was mercy? He was keeping them from an eternity of moral decision-making. Can you imagine? Now that your moral compass is gone, you have to spend the rest of your life trying to figure out right from wrong on your own. That doesn't sound like paradise to me. And we'll go back to that in just a moment. But let's think about the consequences. We don't get to live forever. And we spend the rest of our lives trying to figure out 
what is right and what is wrong. Not so much punishments as just natural consequences of the decision. Let's look at man's consequences, to work the ground. Prior to that, God had created a, a garden where everything was perfect. Now, God's hand has been removed. If God removes his hand from something, it becomes harder, right? Now he's removed it, Adam has to work. Woman's consequences. Now, again, if God was a part of the process, we can kind of deduce from the statement that childbirth was not an unpleasant thing. Now it is, because God has removed his hands. And most importantly, that her husband would rule over her, and it says, your desire will be for him. Now, some people have taken that to interpret that woman's punishment is now she is subject to man. She has to serve him for the rest of her life, that God is ordaining this. But I want to look at this a little bit different. He's not so much saying, here's the punishment for what you did. He's saying, this is the natural consequence. Now, you have to rely on this man for protection, for provision, He's going to have to be the one to hunt. He's going to have to be the one to protect you from wild animals that come and try to get you. And guess what? Historically proven, if you are dependent on someone, they will typically take advantage of you and rule over you, which is exactly what history has shown that men have typically done, right? But the other side of this, God is not saying your desire will be for him and that that was a punishment. He's saying because he will treat you poorly because he can, you will constantly look for ways to overthrow him. You will constantly look for ways to manipulate him, to try to be better than him, to try to put your place above him because that's the only way that you can win in this world. That's the natural consequence. It wasn't him saying, I've made it this way. He's saying, it's what's gonna happen because my hand is not on you anymore. You've made your choice. These are the natural consequences. Justice is the natural consequence of operating outside of God's goodness. So we have two options. Pastor Mike talked about this in his first sermon in his series on, on the past few Sundays. He said, we have two options. We can trust in what God has determined to be right from wrong, or we can trust from our own discernment. If we choose option two, we become the judge and we reject God's goodness. Sin is operating outside of the goodness of God. Because of the choices of our first parents, each of us are born with the knowledge of good and evil and without the gift of eternal life. And as a consequence, we all fall short of the glory of God, and it is appointed for us all once to die. Without the transformational work of Jesus Christ, each of us, like sheep, will turn to our own way. Justice is the consequence of turning to our own way. Justice is what we deserve, and can I be very blunt in saying today, we all deserve hell. One view of hell is not that it's a place of torment and torture, at least not in the way that we would generally think of it, but that it's a place where a merciful God stops pursuing us, where chains are not used as a form of term, torment, but as an act of merciful restraint as God fully removes his hand from our lives, allowing us to live life the way that we pursue and what we believe to be good apart from him, as the depth of our own depravity are realized and exasperated for all of eternity. That's justice. Where our rejection of God becomes permanent and every good thing about the world disappears because goodness is merely a reflection of God's character and for all of eternity, you are becoming the worst version of yourself without him. Take away the flames and the, the fire and brimstone. That sounds like hell to me. So let's go back to the garden. We said it's not necessarily exile, it, it was mercy. 
They couldn't live forever because if they did, they would be living in hell. God's choice to send them out was actually the beginning steps of his redemptive plan. Now, here's why semantics matter. Because as I said at the beginning, that, ba- that banner that read justice for all people is not a statement of tolerance. Justice for all people means that each of us deserves hell because when we pursue our own way, we will eventually have our own way. And that's not really what we want. Now, we are made in God's image. We're not the judge. We must eat, treat each other with a mutual respect and compassion. Now, the, 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 the three areas that I said are distorted justice, they are an outcry for repentance. And, and can I be clear today that there is a need for repentance? When we look back in our history, the way that we have treated marginalized people groups is an atrocity. And there needs to be repentance for those things. But each of us needs to take accountability for ourselves. What are areas that we have done those things? That's where we can take accountability. But the problem is, in the three areas that I mentioned before, it's usually not repentance for actions. It's something different. Now, as I talked about the philosophers, and they began to question, is God the highest moral standard? There was kind of a split once Christianity became a part of our, our, uh, our history, where some went to the Christian perspective, and they began to learn what the Bible had to say about God. And then others went to more of a human-centered perspective. What started with Plato trickled down, those who didn't go to the Christian perspective, trickled down into what today is considered secular humanism. If you're uh, familiar with that term, what secular humanism is, is it is putting man at the center of all of history. That everything we do puts us at the center, and it questions, well, it doesn't even question whether God exists, it blatantly uh, rejects the idea of God. It says that it isn't even, isn't even something to be considered. Now, that secular humanism has its roots in Marxism. Most of us are familiar with that term. Most of those justice, distorted justice movements have their roots in Marxism, and that's not a, that's not a secret. That's blatantly a part of it. What Marxism did is it said there are marginalized people groups in that system, it was class, who needs to overthrow their oppressors and level the playing field, what becomes socialism, right? Now, today, it's a little bit different. It's not about class, but what the people groups that are target are often have to do with race, uh, bi- biological makeup, so men and women, and um, uh, sexual preference, things like that. And what begins to happen is there's a call for repentance, not in saying if you've mistreated these groups, you should repent, but because you belong to a group that has historically mistreated, that's where the repentance comes from. So with social justice, I'm supposed to apologize, not for the way that I've treated people, and I should take accountability of that, but because of the color of my skin. I should apologize because my biological makeup makes me a man and that men have typically been oppressive. I should apologize for my belief in the sanctity of life. These are what the distorted views of justice have to say. They're not about decisions. Christianity, the gospel, calls us to repent for the things that we've done. These justice movements call for me to repent, not for what I've done, but for these intrinsic qualities about myself that I didn't ask for. Being born in America, having certain privileges, those are the things that we're called to repent for. That is not what the gospel teaches. And what actually happens here 
whenever my intrinsic qualities are what I'm supposed to be repentant for, it's the createdness of me who is being called to the stand to testify. And if my createdness is called to the stand, then it's not me who's calling for repentance, but it's the creator. Saying, you created a group this way, you should repent for that. That is the problem with what we consider to be justice. Now, we put man in the center, man goes his own way, man becomes his own, jo- his own judge, and he places God on trial. In doing so, many people begin to view God as the one who needs to repent to us because his standards are far too intolerant. But remember that God declares what is just, not on a whim or by appealing to some other standard, but by what reflects his own character. He has no need to repent. He is not a weak man who has been uh, shown his fault. He's a lion who declares what is good, and his own nature confirms it. It's like C.S. Lewis writes in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If anybody had a bet that I was going to use C.S. Lewis in my sermon, you win. It'll probably always happen. I I told our secretary today, if C.S. Lewis hadn't written so many books, I probably wouldn't have any sermons to preach. Now, C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, concerning the lion Aslan, who was a a symbol of Christ. This is a, a text from the book. A lion? I thought he was a man. Is he safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. They replied, safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king. Or as C.S. Lewis further developed this same character in the silver chair, a conversation with another girl, he said, Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I am dying of thirst, she said. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? She said. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed in its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will will you promise not to do anything to me if I do? She said. I make no promises, said the lion. She was thirsty. She was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had taken a step closer. Do you eat people like me? She said. I have swallowed up girls and boys and women and men, kings and empires, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, she said. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, she said, coming another step near. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then, the lion said. There is no other stream. And there is no other stream. If we want justice, then we can't reject the standard of that justice. We must drink from the only stream. All the, sta- all the standard is a lion, not a house cat, one who can devour nations, but makes way for us to drink the streams of living water. We play by his rules, and he does not have to answer to us. He's not a pushover. He demands perfection. Leviticus uh, chapter 19, verses 2 says, be, uh, be holy as I am holy. Or as Jesus would reiterate in Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as I am perfect. There's no just getting by. There's no being the best I can be. It's perfection or it's death. There is no alternative. Justice for all people means that we all deserve exactly what we sought after, eternity without his goodness. But that lion, although not safe, 
is, is good and has made a way. He didn't lower the standard, but he called us up to a higher way of living. One that is only possible by accepting his standard, the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I feel like the term justice is one that we have to be very careful with. Because like I said, there is much to be repented for. And there have been many people groups that have been mistreated. And we should repent for the areas that we have played a part in that. But in leveling that playing field, we have to realize that all of us deserve the same thing. And without Jesus, without that intervention, what we deserve is eternity away from God. Eternity of searching after our own way, our own decisions in a way that God takes his hands off of us and lets us pursue that. Now, he has made a way for us to have this, and and we know that, those of us in this room. One of the things that I like about Wednesday nights is most, I'm assuming, and it's it's a careful assumption that most in this room have received Jesus as your personal Savior. And so I I can go a little bit deeper uh, in some areas that are more uh, front-room conversations, if you will, as we we dig deeper into the text. But I do want to take a moment, and I want to say, if you're in this room, and maybe this is all new to you, maybe you've never heard this before, or you have, but it kind of struck you a little bit differently, and you'd say, wow, I, I didn't realize that God demanded perfection from me. Let me be clear. And as we go into this series, I'm going to explain this further. He does demand perfection, but He's made a way because he's the perfect one who sacrificed himself so that that door could be open. And if you're here today and you would say, you know, I, I've, I've never quite seen it the way that you're putting it out here. And it, something inside of me is stirring. I want to give an opportunity. And so without making a, um, a big invitation down here, I just would like us all to close our eyes, bow our heads. And if that's you today and you'd say, I believe that I have fallen short from the glory of God. I believe that one day I will die and I want to be able to stand before God having met his standard because of the way that he's made through Jesus Christ. In your heart, I just want you to make that decision and I'm going to pray a prayer if you would repeat after me and if everybody would repeat after me. Dear Jesus, I'm sorry. I've failed you. I've gone my own way. But I know that you are the way. And I'm coming home. I believe that I'm a sinner. I believe that you're the only way to heaven. And I confess that you are the Lord of my life from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thank you all for this tonight. And as we, as we dive in, we're going to be talking about that God is a God of justice, but he's also a God of mercy. But that's the topic for next week. So thank you all for joining me. I really enjoyed sharing this. And uh, we will see you all on Sunday. Thank you so much. chose me has always been a mystery cause all my life I've been told I belong at the end of the line
With all the other not quite With all the never get it right Well, but it turns out they're the ones you were looking for all this time Cause I'm just a nobody I'm trying to tell everybody All about somebody Who saved my soul And ever since you rescued me You gave my heart a song to sing I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus 